Hello, I'm Gavin Esler, Chancellor of the University of Kent, and we are preparing for tonight's In Conversation with the former world featherweight boxing champion, Barry McGuigan. Are you looking forward to it, Barry? Very much looking forward to it. I'm, uh, I'm hoping to get some very sensible questions and <laughs> some maybe not so sensible. We're going to have a bit of fun. I think we can possibly get both <laughs> sensible and nonsensical. That's me with Barry McGuigan, In Conversation from the University of Kent. <clears throat> Hello, hello, good evening, and could I add my thanks also to all of you who've contributed to the Kent Opportunities Fund because it's a, I can't tell you how many students fall into that category of saying thank you for coming here tonight uh, and the money is put to very good use. Could I also say uh, thanks to those in the audience who have helped uh, Kent, the University of Kent and Christchurch win the chance to build a great Medical Centre in Canterbury. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this will be good for the universities, it will be good for Canterbury, it will be good for Kent, and I think it will be good for our country. Now, my first job in journalism was with a newspaper called the Belfast Telegraph, followed by some time with the BBC in Northern Ireland. And these were somewhat difficult times. In Northern Ireland, as uh, we all know, neighbour was sometimes pitted against neighbour, unionist against nationalist or republican, sometimes Protestants against Catholics. Some 3,500 people were killed and many of us didn't agree with our neighbours about many things. But one thing we tended all to agree on is that this guy was a really good guy. <laughs> and we wanted him to win. Now, uh, Barry was born in the Irish Republic, just over one side of the border. He had huge support, huge support in Northern Ireland and all over the island of Ireland. He was known as the Clonus Cyclone and still is. In fact, in 1982, he won eight fights, seven by a knockout. He went on to become the WBA World Featherweight Champion against Eusebio Pedrosa of Panama at Loftus Road. And if you ever saw that fight among 20 million people who did on television, it was amazing, and we'll get to that in a minute. Above all, Barry, throughout his career as a boxing promoter, a boxer and boxing promoter, has used what can be and can seem to be a very brutal sport to help bring people together, to help make lives better. So please, will you welcome Barry McGregor. <laughs> <clears throat> It's a, it is a bit of a paradox, uh, Barry, that a sport which is very tough mm -hmm. and which involves a degree of violence brought people together in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. during really terrible times. Well, it, more than that, Gavin, um, boxing in, in communities, not just in Belfast, but all over, all over the country and all over the world, uh, have, have the unique ability, because it's tough and a violent sport, um, it has the way of reaching troubled kids. And I use that sort of euphemistic to the term, but it's kids that are, uh, are from, in many cases, very troubled backgrounds and, and poor backgrounds. And we, you, know, we, you started off with the example of Belfast. And in Belfast, it had that, that more significance. It actually saved lives. These are kids that in the 70s, late, late 60s, 70s and 80s, that were fodder for the paramilitaries. And they were on the cusp. And these are just, 
you know, kids that had full of energy and things weren't going right in their lives and just they wanted to do something. And, and they were the perfect specimens for paramilitaries. And, and, and I'm serious when I say thousands and thousands of lives were saved through boxing. And boxing in both the loyalist side of things and the, the Catholic side of things. Um, you know, I know these amateur coaches, that I know them, Jerry Story, um, Michael Hawkins, all over, the, all over the place, both in the Protestants and Catholic sites, saved these kids' lives by getting them involved in, in boxing, giving them a purpose in their lives, giving them something to invest their time and their energies in. And it made, none of them didn't ever make it to the top, but the, it made their lives, it gives their lives some sort of focus and structure. And it saved their lives. They know it and they said it. I, I remember people in Northern Ireland at the time saying, mm -hmm when somebody was getting a bit out of order, would say, I'll leave the fighting to McGuigan. Yes. <laughs> well, that, 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 that was the, the, the slogan, and, and it, was, it was important. My, my wife is in the audience somewhere here, and, and we, we lived on the border, and it was, a, you know, it was a very fraught, dangerous time. And I was a Catholic, and I fell in love with this girl who lived across the road who was a Protestant. She went to school in the north, I went to school in the south. Uh, and so we started going out and we got married and it was really in, in probably the worst times in, in 1981, 82, 83, those were really violent times. The hunger strikes know, the were going on, Hunger strikes example. were going on, there was a lot of bitterness and, and nastiness and, and, and I had to make a decision at that stage. Uh, you know, they were, because I had moved out into the north, uh, moved into the north because that was really the hinterland of my support and I was from the south, people were dying every day, and you were expected, and, and you'll understand this, uh, particularly because you worked over there during the worst time, uh, you were expected to sort of nail your colours to the mast. You were expected to, whether you were from one side or the other. That was a given. And I, I remember saying, I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm not going to be pressurised into doing that. I'm not going to do that. And my mother had a grocery business and my dad was a professional musician. And we had people from both sides of the community who came into our, our, our shop and, 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 you know, gave us a, a living. And, you know, I, and these were people I really admired and had great respect for and I wasn't going to get involved in that. So I decided I was not going to wear colours that were going to alienate people. So we, I made my shorts out of the United Nations flag of peace and we had the dove of peace on it. And my dad, instead of singing anthems, sang Danny Boy. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and, it, and people said, oh, it was commercialism. I said, no, it wasn't. It was a way of me sort of circumventing all of this hate. And it had amazing effects. And we had people coming in. You know, it's, it's hard to believe this, but I had CBS in America, coast to coast, covering my three fights before I fought for the world title. And we were going, and because of the atmosphere, because of what was happening outside of the ring, and then people coming together and you know, thinking, you know, we love this kid, we love his, he can really fight, first of all, that's the first thing. And secondly, you know, we wanted to, we want to get, we want to get and show that we are human beings and we can get on with each other. And it was really unique, it was a very special time. It only lasted a couple of years, or you know, four or five years, but it was very special. Can we back up a little bit and go to when you were a little boy, I mean, did, was it boxing that you wanted to do? Did you want to do those all, all kinds of sports you could yes. have done? Uh, was it only boxing and why boxing? Well, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was a very energetic child and um, 
I remember they, they used to, my mother was used to sort of these, the wild things I used to get involved in. And, and this woman used to, apparently she walked into my mum when I was about four years old. She said, Kitty, I don't want to alarm you, but um, your son is on top of the pole in the diamond. I used to climb up the pole and sit on the top of it. Oh, she said, no, that's all right. He does that all the time. <laughs> so that's the sort of behaviour I used to get involved in. So, so I, very I energetic boys, very I tell you. Energetic. Euphemism for being a real pain <laughs> a to your mother. A, 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 a lunatic. But I, I, um, I, I, I used to be a decent runner and a fairly decent player, and, and a soccer player. Athletic, or sort of um, Gaelic was too much for me because I, I was too small. And when I used to jump up, the guys would hit me with their elbows on the heads and then we'd get into tussles and I'd get chucked off and all of that sort of stuff. So uh, I, Tussles, that's uh, another euphemism. That's I think you can work that one yeah. out yourselves. Um, so uh, uh, so I, I, I was a good middle distance runner uh, and then I used to hang out with a bunch of guys called the McCurtain Street Hotspurs and there was a fella called Leo Strong and Liam Flanagan and Rex Flanagan. There's about 12 of us and we went into this old derelict building uh, that, that was owned by a guy called Frank, Frank McGahey and we found one pair of gloves and we all, we each got a glove and I was <laughs> fortunate that I got the right glove <laughs> and, and I, we, we boxed each other and I pounded the head off most of them, you know, so, uh, and they were all considerably bigger than me. And I thought, well, I, I could be good at this. So I got my father to bring me out to the local club with, local, uh, let me quantify that, it was about nine miles out the road and it was on the border and you'd have to go over the border three or four times before yeah. you get to the club and um, so you go into the north and into the south and into the north and into the south and then the club was there and so I, I, we went out about half a dozen times and my father says that's the last time I'm, I'm taking you out to this club if nobody turns up. And so we waited for an hour and I said that don't go yet because he was a musician and he travelled away four nights a week. And so he said, I've got to go. And I said, no, no, wait, wait. And this guy came walking up the hill, uh, a guy called James Little. And I, and I said, oh, this looks promising. And he opened the door and that was it. And I got into the club and I, I just was mesmerized by the, the, the boxing gloves and the punch bags. And that was it. That was the beginning of, of the start of my boxing career. And there were a lot of murders along the border. Mm. And go, I, I, just crossing the border yeah, crossing. was really tricky, yeah, wasn't it? Was it? Tricky. I mean, you never well, knew who you would meet exactly. on either well, side. Well, the interesting thing was it, it, it didn't really become a problem until um, so the mid-70s where there were a lot of murders on the border and, you know, different sides committing horrible, hideous offences. And, and then they started to blow the roads up and barricade the roads and so they would funnel you through, through one road and um, my mother just said it was too risky so I better find a club that's in the south and I started, I joined the Smithborough Club which had been open in the 60s and closed and then reopened in the 70s and really that was the beginning of me entering championships and boxing for titles. It took me three years before I won a national title and then it, it just took off straight after that. I, sh I should say, uh, we're not going to talk about politics tonight, but this is the same border that our dear Foreign Secretary says is like the border between Islington and Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, anyway, let's, um, <clears throat> leave it, leaving that aside for one moment. Um, do, do, do you think, you know, as you move towards being world, world champion, do you think it was, 
it was clearly hard work and it was clearly talent. But is there, is there, do you have a thought about yourself as to whether it was really talent and ambition that got you to where you you got to, or was it just every day the grind of? No, day? no, no, no. It's it, you. You have. You have to. I mean, it's interesting because what I do now is I develop talent with my son. Uh, he he's my youngest guy who who uh, boxed for Ailsham out in. Uh, the other side of Canterbury, and he won a couple of national titles. And I trained him at that stage, but he now coaches my boxers, uh, and he is an exceptional coach. Very, very smart, very young, and he has embraced strength and conditioning, and he's very, very, very good at what he... He can analyse things very quickly, works out tactics. He worked the corner of... George Groves. George had three attempts at fighting for the world title and didn't get across the line and Shane had him and in 11 months he, he won that, he won the world title on his fourth attempt. Now that, you asked me a very important question. You asked me about is it determination and is it hard work? It's, it's both. You have to have natural ability. You know, here's the, the, the mandatory things. You need to have a good punch. You need to have explosiveness. You need to be um, a, an explosive athlete. So you have stamina athletes and you have explosives. You need to be explosive because you can train explosiveness to, to have endurance, but it's very difficult to train a guy that hasn't got power to have power. You need to have a good chin, which is very important. And it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, if you can't take a good shot, there's no point in having a terrific punch and be the beautiful mm. boxer. If you can't take a, a belt on the old Vera Lynn, you're in trouble, you know? <laughs> um, you, so you need to have that, you need to have heart, but above everything else, when you, because everybody has ability to a certain extent, but the top guys, they have all the ability, and they have heart, and they have drive, and they have chin, and they have power, but drive is crucial. I mean, it's interesting, I'm talking about George, and I'm, I'm bigging him up. Every day in the gym, all the young kids that are really you know, ambitious and hardworking, he outworks every one of them because he really, really wants to be the very best. And that, you know, for me, is an example of, you, know, you really have to have it. Now, I had real ability, natural ability. I had long arms, 70 inch reach, five foot six, but I had a mm -hmm. five foot 10 inch reach. Look at the size of my hands, huge, <laughs> big boulders. So I had big boulders on the end. And I could really punch, and I had a good chin, and I had decent explosiveness, and, but I, I had drive. I really, really wanted it, and I worked really, really hard. And I knew that, you know, the interesting thing is I knew when I got to 29 and I had my last fight, I knew it was time to stop. And I remember the great Alexis Arguello, who, well, most of the young People who won't remember, if you, unless you're into boxing, Our, uh, Alexis Arguello beat Jim Watt for the world lightweight title. But he 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 beat he won three weight divisions and should have won a fourth. But he was an extraordinary fighter he was from Nicaragua, a fantastic fighter. They call him the explosive thin man. And he said, I remember him saying, "They always say it's the last one to know when it's time to quit." He says, "You know, they say the boxer." He says but I want to be the first. Mm. And the interesting thing is that since that, and I agreed with him 100%, I said yes, but since that I've discovered an actual fact 
that the boxers are the first ones to know, but the last ones to admit it to themselves. Uh, Nearly yeah. always for financial reasons or because they miss the roar of the crowd or the affirmation or, you know, just missing being the top performer. But I, I got out at 29 and I said, that's enough. I've had enough. I know the fire's not there anymore and it's time to stop. Can I ask you what, what might seem like an idiotic question, but when you are taking punishment mm -hmm. in the middle of a fight that you want to win, mm -hmm. does it hurt? Yes. <laughs> just wanted to check. Yeah. So when you, you just keep going on... Well, well pe pe people say it, it doesn't hurt. And, and what happens is uh, it does hurt. But what you do is you build up a, a tolerance for pain. And as you get more experience and you fight higher level of uh, opponents. And what happened in the amateur game was, uh, you know, they, they introduced head guards after the Los Angeles Olympics, mm -hmm. I think in 1984, they introduced head guards. Um, and then of course, when you turn professional, there are two really important things. The, the punching surface of the glove is like that when you're in, a, when you're in a, an amateur uh, fight, but in a pro fight, it's like that. Much thinner. And, and much thinner, and you don't have a head guard. So you really, you don't know whether guys can take a shot until they've taken the head guard off. So you look at talent, and for me now when I'm developing talent, you look at guys, they look great, but you have to see them without the head guard on. Because that, that you have to know whether they can take a shot or not. But um, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, so. I've forgotten the question. Well, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it was basically, does it hurt and how do you cope does it with hurt? it? And it, you get, it, through, you get it, through it. It does hurt and, and you build up a tolerance to pain. And as you get fight better opponents and better sparring partners, you get hit harder and you get hit more often and you learn how to cope with that. And you develop your neck muscles and you develop your abdominal muscles and you work. The strength of conditioning is, is being able to build your body so that you can absorb punishment because that is a key part of the, your makeup as a fighter. You have to be able to absorb punishment. And in many cases, like, I mean, I remember you, Chris Eubank, and some of you will remember Chris Eubank Sr. And, and with the greatest of respect in the world, he wasn't a great fighter. He was very, very good, but he had an incredible ability to digest punishment. And the other guys that were marginally better technically could not absorbed the same power that he could. And so when they got tired and fatigued and he could take their punches and then he started hitting them, they couldn't take it. And that is a, a, a fundamental part of a, a professional boxer. You have to be able to absorb punishment. But it does hurt. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, you know, you hurt for a week after a fight. Mm. You know, I used to fight 15 rounds instead of 12. You'd be sore for a week. But, you know, the other thing is, Gavin, on a you know, a six-week, 12-week, sometimes 14-week preparation for a fight. When you start your sparring and you, you, you're doing your physical, your strength work and everything else, you're literally sore every day. Every single day you're mm -hmm. sore, right up to the week before the fight. And then you've got to maintain your weight and drop your weight and, and um, you know, uh, monitor every bite that goes into your mouth because that is one of the crucial things of, of boxers nowadays and the difference between now and when I fought 35 years ago or 30 years ago. The, the, the difference is that you can weigh in the day before the fight and you weigh in at 
12 o'clock, 1 o'clock on a Friday, and you box on Saturday at 9 o'clock, and you're a featherweight, which is my weight division, they weigh nine stone on, on 12, uh, at 12 o'clock on Friday, and on Saturday night they weigh 10 stone. And people say, how can that be? Easy. They just liquid, 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 and what they do is they dry out slowly, they drop their calorie intake, they, they drop their three litres of water to one litre, and then in the last three or four days, just enough to, to satisfy their thirst, they bang on the scales exactly nine stone, and as soon as they get off the scales, you'll see them, wallop, wallop, diorolite, and, and mm-hmm. the next night they're a stone heavier. So it's hard to believe, but it's, that's one of the parts of, of the game that, that's the difference between now, bigger, f- more filled. And I look at some of these guys, how in under God did he make nine stone? He's huge. And that's what it is. It's, it's mm. diet and, and conditioning, strength and conditioning. <laughs> Now, we talked a bit about receiving punishment. What about giving punishment yeah. and the way you feel because you know what it's like, you know how much it hurts, you also hurt people. That's, yes. that's part of it. How, that's, how, is, how does that go down with you? Well, it's part of the business. And it's, it's interesting, Gavin, because I'm worried about contact sport. And I'm worried about... I'm just worried about it in the future because we've got this movie concussion and we have you know guys been sin binned in rugby and, mm. and and i understand all that but you got to be careful that you don't take away the nature of the sport that's why kids have got involved in it that's why they wanted to do it and there is a of course we have to make sure that all the medical facilities are there if anything goes wrong but you can't play with with contact sports to a degree where you take it away because then nobody will want to watch it mm. You know, or and, do and, it. And, 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 and you know, at the end, of course, people get injured, and we had a, we've had a dreadful 18 months in boxing. For th- 25 years, it was relatively free, and then we've had three deaths mm. in a space of 18 months, which is horrible, horrible, and, and we just hate it, and it's just terrible. But it's in contact sports, you're going to get hurt, you're going to get injured, and we we can do our level best to make sure that guys can recover and they've got the very best medical help and support. If I listed you the, the actual medical rules of, of the British Boxing Board of Control, you have to have an MRI scan, you have to have an MRA scan, you have to have a, a psychometric test, you have to uh, you have annual MRI scans. Um, if you're knocked out, um, you're out for 30 days, you can't spar, you can't train. So they really are very thorough. And what they do now, and the one thing that, that they, they're a, there is maybe a little bit of improvement is the one thing I talked about was the, the dehydration and the rehydration. That's the one area that we think is connected with, with head injury. We've got to make sure about that. When you get young boxers, young talent, yeah. young people, and you made very eloquently the case that sometimes from troubled backgrounds who would yeah. get into a different type of trouble. Yes. How do you balance that? If they say to you, Barry, you know, or the parents say to you, should he really be boxing? What, yeah. What's going on here? How do, you, how, how do you balance that in your own mind? I say absolutely it's the best thing for them. They, they should take part in boxing. You know, the, as I mentioned to you, the closed cell foam, they don't wear head guards anymore, but they're still, it's honestly, it's, they're very safe. They're very competitive. The weight divisions are very, very, very similar. 
uh, age groups. You know, you've got 11 year olds boxing 11 year olds, you've got 12 year olds boxing 12 year olds. You have, so they've really got it down to a fine art. And it's a fantastic sport. I traveled the world, I got to meet people, I got to travel and have the most phenomenal time and experience. And education, because I was inquisitive, because I wanted to meet and wanted to know about Mohammed or wanted to know about you know, guys from different countries and I wanted to know all about them and therefore I was keen to find out about their religion and their background and it was just a great, great education for me to travel all over the world and, and to win international tournaments. And you don't win everything and I lost in the Olympic Games and I, I lost in the, um, you know, in the European Juniors and you know, and it was disappointment, but I got it's a, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. For any parent that's in the room here and the kids want to box, absolutely let them do it because they'll 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 have a chance to experience it. And they, it may not work out for them, and they may not like it, and you know that'll be that'll be apparent fairly quickly. But it's a great great chance for these kids to become part of this boxing family and to get to travel and meet people and enjoy themselves and to go places that they sometimes would never be able to go to and it's 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 great for them i'll, I'll throw open to questions uh, from the audience in just a moment but i wanted to ask you about the pedroza fight yes. i wanted to ask you about the point where you became world champion yeah. and it was an amazing fight loftus road yeah. 20 million people saw yes. it is that right i mean <laughs> t t tell us a little bit about the scene because it it's for you it must have been very tough for him, it was slightly tougher, uh, but it was great entertainment. Well, what happened was, I mentioned before that I, well, CBS covered my fights and they wanted to see me tested um, by a guy that could, before they'd back me for a world title fight. So they got in this guy in the King's Hall called Juan Laporte and he was a terrific fighter. He just, the only two champions, WBC, WBA, recognised in the UK. And we fought 15 rounds. Um, the WBC had introduced in 82 the 12 round fight. But the WBA still, uh, the WBC fought 12. The WBA didn't agree to 12 rounders until 1986 or 87. Uh, so it was one of the last 15 rounders. But before the, 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 the Pedroza fight, I fought this guy called Laporte. He had lost the WBC title and he gave me a terrific fight, but I proved that I could, I could fight uh, at the highest level. And uh, so I got my world title fight. And he wouldn't come to Belfast because of the troubles. And that was pretty... Uh, and also he saw on, on, on CBS the phenomenal support and the, the cauldron of the King's Hall. And it was such an mm. intimidating atmosphere that obviously he didn't want any part of that either. So he, 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 he agreed, and this is an interesting thing, a number of, of firsts in that. We agreed to fight in London, and it was, it was, uh, um, it was um, right beside BBC headquarters. Mm. And it was in Loftus Road, Queen's Park Rangers football ground. And it was the very first, because Jonathan Martin was the head of sport at that time, and it was the very first time that the BBC had ever done an OB. A live fight. They had covered Cooper and all of those fighters before, but they'd never done it as live. They'd, they'd oh, filmed it, edited it, and then put uh -huh. it out on Sports Night uh -huh. or uh, during the week, uh, whatever the program was called. So they had never actually done a live OB. And that was the reason why we needed to be close to uh, the BBC. So they were literally uh, just around the, the neighbors, corner. There, neighbors. Yeah. And 
uh, and so they uh, and so they put it out, and it was and so we they didn't have uh, it in Belfast, so we brought the mountain to Mohammed. We brought ten thousand people over to support me, and it was there were twenty seven thousand people that night in Queens Park Rangers. <laughs> I believe it was the best crowd they had all year. <laughs> um, and for many uh, a year yes, since, I, you I might actually say. There's no QPR supporters in the audience, so I could be in for trouble. But uh, it was it was phenomenal and. The noise was incredible, and, and there were about four fights on before the main event, and I was in the, the home uh, dugout in, 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 in the dressing rooms, and he was in the away. And coming out of that atmosphere was incredible, and, and I get into the ring, and uh, we came out, and, and, and it was shortly after the Heysel disaster, which was terrifying, and they were worried about the crowd and whatever, but they weren't worried enough to actually get the barriers sorted out. So I came out, and, and all the Irish fans, like they, they were just, yeah, yeah, you're going to sit in your seat? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> a, a couple of Sherbert's later, yeah, I'll sit in my seat. Yeah, and as soon as they walked out, they just surrounded me, and we couldn't move. And it took us 12 minutes. Like, you know what it's like on television. 12 minutes to get from the docker to the ring itself. Producer was having a heart attack. So they attack. were having nightmares. Yeah. And you can imagine what American TV were having as well. So um, anyway, uh, we, we, we got to uh, the ring and then Pedroza came in and the atmosphere was incredible. And Dad got up and sang Danny Boy because that was our anthem. And, and everybody sang it back with him. And uh, it was amazing. Irvine Welsh... Uh, who wrote Train Spotting and, and all of that was in the audience, as was Lucian Freud, the, the painter. So they were all boxing fans. And he was there and he said, he, he turned around when my dad was singing Danny Boy and his father was crying. And he had a, he had a great, he had a taciturn relationship with his dad. And he, they had a, that, that was a, a great memory for him, you know, because they became great that night and the great friends and the fight was good. And, I remember the fight itself. Uh, I mean, my, my, my style of fight must have go. St- I mean, I, I can remember literally every punch. You know, the, it's just like you get, you get older in life and you forget things, but this thing is seared into my memory. And I remember I knew I had, because he was tall and five foot ten and rangy, and he was a beautiful boxer and he could, and he could really whack, I knew that I had to take the fight to him, walk him down, put him under pressure. Because technically, if I'd have stood off him, I would never have won the fight because he would have boxed the head off me. So I knew I had to stay on, on top of him. So I put him under pressure from the, f- from the first bell. Kept walking forward, pushing him back, pushing him back. And he hit me with lots of punches. And he hit me so many in the fourth round, I thought it was bloody surrounded. But I got into it, and in the seventh round, I, I caught him with a right hand, knocked him down. I got up again and I thought I had him and I rushed at him and threw punches but he, he went back to the ropes and he put his hands up like that and I went, well, he's not in that much trouble, you know. <laughs> uh, and then I had him in pretty bad trouble in the ninth and I had him out on his feet in the 13th round but like the laudable champion he was, he held on in there until the 15th round. So I knew at the end of it that I had a very good chance but, but I was, you're never quite sure. And uh, then the, the, the referee announced that the, 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 I was the winner. And, and 
everybody who had behaved themselves, believe it or not. Uh, just this, they trampled all over the media to get up into the radios. And the guys were saying, and Tom crying with a great Irish independent writer, and he says, somebody stood on my head. <laughs> <laughs> we, climbed, we climbed up into the ring, but it, it, was, it was bonkers. And, and I, I, uh, I went home. My, another interesting story, uh, um, my mother and my sister... Rachel and my auntie Breege were the only ones in the family that were still in Clonus. And everybody had a great night. And by the time my, we, we had this big old uh, tea mill, it was a, a house on the diamond and there were three stories. And uh, my mother and Breege got off to bed about sort of two o'clock and everybody celebrated into sort of early hours of the morning. And my mother used to light this holy candle and put it in the top of the television. Help me win the world title and then burn the bloody house down. <laughs> right? And there was a raging fire and Breeze, this is the truth, Breeze went down the stairs and saw the fire and saw the smoke and ran back up and woke my mother and woke my sister. And they were sitting, uh, they were standing at the window, opened the window up and they were shouting out through the window. And there was a guy, a, a drunk guy, well, everybody was drunk, but he was particularly drunk, uh, a guy called Brendan McKenna. It was like 5.30 in the morning. And he was walking across the diamond, staggering across the diamond. And my mother was shouting, help, help, we're on fire. And he ignored her and just carried on. And she said, help, we're on fire. And he turned and he says, we're all on fire, love. You'll be all right in the morning. And he carried on. So, thankfully, five minutes later, the, the guard, the guard that she had called, the police came up the road and saw my mother and got them out. But it was a... That was, that was very unfortunate. But, uh, uh, so that, that was, uh, I was going to stay in London until the midweek, but because of the fire, I, I came home on the Monday. 75,000 people gathered to see me in Royal Avenue, which was mm, amazing. Belfast, yeah. And uh, in Belfast. And then three days later, I went down to Dublin, and 250,000 people turned out to see me. So it was amazing. It was a, that was the greatest night of my uh, day of my life, looking at th those people and knowing how much I meant to the Irish people was a phenomenal. Not uh, bad for a four-year-old who used to sit up at the top of a pole in the middle of the diamond <laughs> in Clonus. That's, that's it true. It didn't do that's too badly, really. Not, not too bad. It was, it was great. <laughs> let's, let's bring up the lights if we can and, and have a few questions from the, from the floor. I've got some that uh, have already come in, actually. Who'd like to start us off? There's a gentleman at the front and anybody up the back. Just wave your hands, if you would. How are you doing? Nice to see you. You just introduce yourself and tell them who you are. Yeah, hello, my, my name's Norman Phillips. I'm a local amateur boxing coach uh, for many years. You used to work in the university too, I right? I still do, unfortunately. Oh, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, my question to you, Barry, your training regime of late 70s, early 80s, when you were a top pro, yeah. and what's the difference between that and what your boy does now with George Groves and the boys he trains? Right, that's a very good question, Norman. Uh, um, I, I sort of touched on it earlier on, the, the difference now is that, that because we have this 24, 30-hour weigh-in, um, guys are bigger. They're bigger and stronger. And so they do strength and conditioning really every day. So they do either strength, I'm telling a lie, so they do strength and conditioning four days a week. So they'll do um, different body parts. Uh, and they'll, they'll do sports-specific programs just for their uh, style and, and size and weight division. And so they're stronger, first of all, bigger, 
and with proper diet and, and proper nutrition and if they eat sensibly. And let me tell you something, even nowadays, with all the advice, they still cheat. They, they, they do, they, they cheat. But it's dead simple. We say, get on the scales. No, 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 get on the scales because we know whether they're cheating or not. And we can monitor how they drop their weight. But that is the one single thing that's because uh, you, you get guys that... F like I was a, a featherweight. Now, I felt I was a pretty big featherweight. But guys nowadays are so much bigger. And they're, because they can dry down to the weight, they hit the scales, and they only ever weigh nine stone once. They never weigh nine stone. <laughs> Seriously, they, they never weigh nine stone in training. Whereas, like, for example, when I fought in 1983 for the European title, I fought a guy called Valerio Natti, an Italian guy. And I was on the weight one month before the fight. Mm. That would never happen nowadays. I mean, George, George is like, um, he boxes at 76 kilos. He walks around at 86 to 90. So he will come down slowly, slowly, slowly. And he'll hit, he'll hit the scales and he weighs 76. And the next day he's almost 14, 16 pounds heavier. That's the one single difference between the fighters nowadays and back then. Because I weighed in at 12 o'clock and I was getting ready to go to the boxing hall or wherever the venue was at, you know, five, six o'clock. And you too, Norman, you would have done that cross uh, because you were a pro fighter too, right? That's right. So nice. He's, very, he's been very humble. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, so... Uh, you had that crossover from, or, or maybe you didn't. Did you weigh in on the day of the fight, or did you weigh in the day before? Yeah. Did you weigh in on the same day? That's what I'm saying. So a lot of the amateurs will weigh in on the same day. They're weighing in the morning, and they'll box in the afternoon or evening. Whereas, uh, you know, the pros will weigh in on Friday at lunchtime, as I say, and will box on Saturday. At, and even if they're preliminary fights, they won't be leaving to the, go to the, to the arena until 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. So they can put on a stone weight. And if you're not putting on a stone weight, you're not in the right weight division. It's as simple as that. I've got a kid at the moment who's 5 foot 9. He's from Edinburgh. 5 foot, five foot 9. He's tall and rangy, but he can really wallop this kid, uh, Lee McGregor. And... He turned pro with me last year, and he weighed, as an amateur, 56 kilos. But now he's weighing bantamweight. So he weighed 8 stone 5 and 12 ounces for his last fight. And he's tall and rangy. And by the time he weighed in the following day, he's probably 10 pounds heavier. And he, this kid can really fight. And, he can, and if I were letting him box at featherweight, I'd be doing him a, 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 um, a disservice. He's in the wrong weight division simply because everybody else is doing it. That's mm. my fault. So Thank I you. hope that's been clear enough. But the difference is strength and conditioning has improved. Technically, we never forget the fact that it's a skill-based sport. And therefore, that is the number one priority. But the strength and conditioning is very, very, a very, very big part of it from now on. Yeah. No, no, no. They, they do everything. They, you, know, you do, for example, compound exercises like squats, deadlifts, 
you'll do leg press, you'll do shoulder press, you'll do lateral raises, but then you'll get the, the rotation exercises where you're, where you're, you know, you're doing the, the bar, the bar's coming down, you're turning like that, so it's because the power in a, in a punch is there. It's where you, you, from the bottom of your f toe to the end of your fist, I'm talking to the converter, but you know what I'm saying? So that's the rotation, whether you're playing golf, whether you're kicking football, it's the rotation speed. That's where your power is. That's where it is. Thank you. Gentleman up there. Do you think Joshua is the real thing? Yes. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. th I think Joshua no. is a pretty unique specimen. 6'6", uh, 115 kilos, runs 100 metres in under 11 seconds. So you talk about a power athlete, this guy is a power athlete, but he's not a natural fighter. He's, everything he's done is, has been trained. He's naturally athletic. But you look at some of the fighters and you look at Ali. Ali was a natural fighter. He wasn't body beautiful. Uh, and then you had guys who, who could beat him, who weren't natural fighters, but were, were muscular like Ken Norton. But, but I think he's the best heavyweight in the world right now. I think he beats Parker. Grinds this is down. next Saturday, isn't yeah, it's it? Yeah, it's a Saturday. Parker uh, Joshua. I'm on, I'm on talk, talk Sport on Thursday, so you, I'm going to tell you before I tell them. <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 th I, think he, he, I think he knocks Parker out because he's just, I mean, the power he generates is phenomenal. But Parker could hurt him, and if he's elusive enough and able to move his head, like the last guy that boxed him, uh, Carlos Tackham, just moved his head. He was a little small guy, and he was exhausted by the 10th round and the referee stopped it but you know I thought he should have been allowed to continue he is the real deal but you know there are a number of very talented kids out there that are coming through at the moment and the problem in America is that not enough Afro-American kids want to box they want to go to gridiron they want to play, play baseball and I just think it's, it's so silly they could make so much money because the heavyweight division is lacking, certainly lacking in talent. But it's great for the UK at the moment because we're dominating uh, uh, professional boxing. At the moment, you know, having the world heavyweight champion is the shop window of our sport. And we currently have eight world champions. But two years ago, we had 14. Hmm. And we had more than North America. That's the first time in history that that's ever happened. So... The professional game is going through a purple patch at the moment. And the amateur game is actually going through a very difficult patch because it, they may very well be out of the Olympic Games in 2020. Really? Yes. No, wait, okay, um, I want to get some more questions from the floor, but I can let me pick up that point. How much is the changing way in which it's televised changes the image of boxing? In other words, when I grew up, everybody would sit around the BBC or ITV yeah. and we'd see a fight. Yeah. Now, you really have to kind of make an appointment to, to, to view it. Yeah. Some people go to the pub, other people subscribe, yeah. but that means that not everybody is going to be watching it. Absolutely. I agree with you, Gavin, 100%. But here's the problem, and you'll understand the, the capricious nature of television and television executives, both in... Re the, I, 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 okay. I second that. I yeah, agree yeah. with Barry. Right. Well, but it, the, the, the problem is that you're asking a terrestrial channel to invest and be patient. 
But if you invest and be patient, you get results. Certainly 30 years ago, when I think the figure varies from 18 and a half million to 20 million. It's probably that million and a half were probably the Irish guys that didn't pay for BBC. <laughs> uh, didn't pay the license fee. But, but um, the, the fact is, you know, just to give you an idea, uh, most uh, Sky Sports average audience on a Saturday night is 175,000. 175,000. And that's partly because people don't want to subscribe and pay for it. Uh, we had a show on the 8th of October last year <coughs> with a young kid called Andrew Selby, fantastically talented kid, two brothers, Andrew and Lee. Lee's already a professional world champion, and Andrew is an outstanding amateur, and he's on, in the top four or five in the world. And he, we got a million of one, we got one and a half million the same night that they got 175,000. But people, uh, people don't understand now why we're getting small audiences. It's television executives who will not invest in professional boxing. They don't want to, because they're going, oh, no, I'm not sure I want to spend X amount on putting a show on. If they did, they'd get the results. They definitely would. But most, TV, most families have three TVs in the house. Whereas back in 1985, we had one TV. And whether you liked it or not, you all watched the boxing. You know what I'm saying? You know, the daughters and the sons and everybody had a reason to watch it, but they'd all sit down as a family and watch it. We don't do that anymore. And, and, and that's part of the reason. But I, I, I think it's greed, charging 20 quid for mm. a fight. When you're paying, most people here will have Sky TV, you're paying 50 quid, 60 quid a month, sometimes 80 and 100. And then you have to pay 20 quid for the fight as well. I just think that's greed and it's unnecessary. <coughs> Some more thoughts? Yes, gentleman in the front. Anybody up at the back? Yes, and there's a lady up at the back. Come to you next. Hi, Barry. How are you doing? Mike Wilkins. Mike, how are you doing? Great Very to see well, you again. Thank you. Yeah, good. How are you doing? So far, so good. Great. Thank great, you. Great. I'm very interested in the psychology of boxing because playing football, you kick off at three, go out. How do you cope from, say, Friday to Saturday to sit in your dressing room, mm -hmm. knowing you're going to fight the best person in the world, mm -hmm. who his whole aim is to knock your head off. Yeah. <laughs> How do you cope with that? Um, you, get, you get accustomed to it, Mike. You take time to, uh, you know, you start off in the amateurs, you've done well, and then you go into inter international competition, you've done well there. And then it gets progressively more pressure, more pressure, more pressure, big. And, you know, fighting somebody in the first place is, is pressure. But the, the more you, the more you uh, compete, and I talked about the, the experience of traveling around the world and, and meeting people and traveling to different places and going to places like Kazakhstan and Moscow and Russia and, and you know, Poland and then going to America and going to South America and boxing against the very best in the world. You get used to it, you get accustomed to it, and you get to the stage where, you know, you get butterflies in your tummy, but that's part of it. You need that. You need to be frightened. Well, I, need, I needed to be frightened. And we've got this young fellow in, in the audience here, and I know he's just picked up the, the, the boxing a couple of years ago, so he'll understand. And as he gets uh, more experience, you, you, you get to tolerate not just the amount of punches and power punches that you, your opponent lands, but you get to tolerate the pressure 
the pressure of, of, of the fight, the day of the fight, not worrying about it, just uh, you know, chilling out, trying to think of everything else but the fight. Invariably, it comes back and your tummy starts, and you start shaking, whatever. But th that's, that's a necessary evil. You need those nerves because that makes you alert and sharp and quick so you don't get caught cold. Um, but everybody, and everybody that says they, they don't do it, that they're, they're telling lies. I know, because uh, you know, the, the louder the guy, you can almost be sure that he's the most nervous. The guy, because there's different ways of controlling it. And some people yeah, are bumptious and loud, but it's, it's, it's normal, Mike. It's how, how you cope. And it's, to a certain extent, you look at the, the, the rugby players, how they've gone out on the field and everything else. I mean, it's different in team sports, I, I, I agree. In, the individual, you're, it's, it's different. Yeah. Where you're going out there. Yeah. And you know that your opponent's going to try and. Yeah. 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 Really. I know that, but that's that's why I picked uh, boxing, and that's why most boxers pick it. But I, I, that's what I love. I love the fact that this guy wants to hurt me because I know I know he's not going to. I'm going to hurt him, <laughs> and it's it's like that. That was part of it, and and um, but it, I never thought of it in it, the the interesting thing is I never thought of it in a in a violent way. I never wanted to hurt people. Never. It was just. I can be better than you. That's all it was. And, and, and you know, you see these guys, and it really makes me very cross. I see these guys spitting vile at each other and saying the most disgusting things. And I, I just want to slap them mm. and tell them, stop that. You know, it's really, that's mm. not necessary. And then you see uh, Klitschko and Joshua, who behaved impeccably and fought a phenomenal mm. fight. That's the way to do it. I keep saying to kids in my camp, I don't want you in my camp if you're going to behave. We vet them beforehand. We always put people through the grinder, Mike, so that we know they, when you put them through a pressurized situation, put them into sparring and everything, all the bile comes out and you know whether you can deal with that or not. That's, that's why we always give people a week of training before we sign anybody because then we know what we're dealing with. But I don't have people like that in my... In, in my uh, in my camp because I, I, I can't really deal with it. But it's, it's, it's something you learn to cope with, Mike. All of that is if you're brought along at the right pace. And sometimes for me as a, as a manager, I've got to move people more aggressively than others. But you, know, you can still see how they're coping. And if they're not coping well, then you just pull them back a bit. You know? But it's, it's something you learn to deal with. Thank you. Lady at the back. Thanks, Mike. I'm hoping this isn't a dumb blonde question, and I'm not a boxer, by the way. Um, I'm going back to your previous point, and I remember seeing a program a while back, watching a boxer go through the drying out period and how mm -hmm. dangerous that was. Mm -hmm. And if it comes back to people being able to put on that amount of weight in mm -hmm. a day, and I feel I know what that's like, mm -hmm. um, why can you not change the rulings about when the weighing happens? Is there something? That's a very good point. Well, yeah. what, what, what we're doing now is, and, and again, it's very difficult to get it exactly right for everybody because we're all different. And some of us can tolerate it and others can't. Um, and that's what makes the word 
so interesting because we're all different and, and it's, you know, Mike talked about the psychology of, of boxing and, and some guys you have to shout at them and scream at them to do something. Other ones that just want to train all the time, you've got to say, stop, 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 don't do it. You, got, you know, you got to... So each individual is different and in relation to weight making, that's not... That's a similar situation. But what, what we do now is, um, for example, when you're boxing for a championship, um, Josh Taylor is our one of the best kids in our stable. So he boxes at 10 stone, 63 point whatever kilos, um, or 140 pounds. So a month before the fight, 30 days out, he's got to be within one stone of that weight. So he's got to weigh 154, 30 days out. Mm. And what they're now doing, and it's, it's the way to do it, is that each fighter, as they get closer to the, uh, to the championship contest, they're weighed and they've got to be less and less and less. So they've got to be closer to it so that you don't have what we call crashing the weight. So they are really on it, but it's, they still can get better. And, and, and I, I, do, I genuinely believe that head injury is to do with dehydration and rehydration. I think that's the one common denominator amongst all of the injuries in, 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 in boxing. And again, uh, knowing when... Uh, I don't want to get into the gory details, but what, a lot of intelligent people here tonight, and they'll understand that a subdural hematoma is the worst possible scenario in a boxing. That's a bleed inside the brain. That's the worst thing. And the problem at the moment, there is nothing that can tell us that a guy's got a bleed on his brain early in the fight. Now, the MOD have come up with something very uh, recently that um, fits around the skull and can detect a bleed, which is phenomenal news for us. So we, we are really excited about that and I want to really get that in. So the, the area of dehydration and rehydration is very important and a very good point. Um, but we're getting to grips with that and then we need to work on the acute injury and how we can stop fights early. Gerald McClellan fought Michael Watson, um, not, uh, sorry, Gerald McClellan fought Nigel Benn all those years ago and Michael Watson fought uh, uh, Chris Eubank and they, I believe 100% that the injury happened earlier in the contest and they respond perfectly and they talk normally and everything else but we, so there's no way of knowing what, what internally is going on. But with this new machine, it sounds phenomenal. And you can actually, if the guy goes back to the corner and the, 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 the people can literally put it on. It's like, a, it's like a skull cap and it's about that thick. They literally put it over your head and they can put it there. It's attached to a screen and they can go, oh, oh, you got a blade. In which case the fight stopped and we get him out and we get him straight to the hospital. And then he's not boxing three or four rounds with a bleed and it being exacerbated by more punches. And it's, it's great news. We've just got a few moments left. I, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about, about now, about you now. I mean, one came in, somebody emailed me and said, uh, they were interested to know how you made the mental adjustment when you knew it was time to quit. I mean, you made it clear you knew when it was time to yeah. quit. But one moment you're at top of the world, you're boxing, you know, the best people in the world, and then you have to do something else at a fairly young age, 20, 29. Yeah, 29. So how, how did you cope with that? Um, not, it wasn't easy. It was difficult. And 
but I, I, I didn't box, I didn't do any boxing training because I'm always into training and keep, keeping fit and whatever. Still train three times a week, but I didn't, I haven't hit a punch bag in 25 years. Because, so, so you, 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 you because just I deliberately, I thought, that's how it all hmm. starts. You start hitting the punch bag, you start hitting the pads, you do a little bit of sparring, and then you think, oh God, I'm gonna make a comeback. That's, I'm telling you, it's, it's, that's one reason. And, and, you know, and a lot of it is, is literally people falling on hard times and it's, it's difficult. And it's, I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment by, um, about a guy called Bill Richmond, who, who was a, a black guy who came, he came, was freed from slavery in Staten Island in 1773 and he came to London and he became part of the establishment and, and, and uh, th that was the beginning of prize fighting. Fascinating story, but, but you know, making the adjustment from, from, from not fighting to, uh, from fighting to not fighting and training twice a day every day wasn't easy. It is just a matter of, but the, the great thing, I, I occupied my time, I got straight into commentary and writing about boxing. And, uh, and, and so I, I just completely and utterly, my wife sitting in the audience, I was away far more than I was when I was boxing. Because when I, at least when I was boxing, I was at home every day. Um, and then I would go to camp. Uh, but being in television, as you know, Gavin, it's like, you're everywhere. You're just flying all over the place. And we were, I was commentating with ATV, BBC, Eurosport, Sky, Star TV in America, um, uh, Sport Network in America, um, Star TV in Asia, I should say. So I was just flying about all over the place. And then I eventually signed a deal with Sky where I worked exclusively for them for 10 years. And then I went to ITV for four and a half years. And then I just got sick to death of commentating. I'm just thinking, you know, it's, this, is, this is easy. It's easy to comment on people. It's altogether different to develop talent and to actually produce talent. And I'd been asked a thousand times, oh, please manage me, please train me, please promote me or take me in, under your wing. And I went, no, 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 I can't do it whilst I'm whilst I'm doing this commentary stuff. And, and I, you know, it was good money on the TV commentary and I just thought, you know, I loved it. But I, I just got so fed up with it and, uh, you know, easy to, and I, I was looking at kids and thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start developing these kids. And then it just so happened that Shane had finished his amateur career and he was doing strength and conditioning and I asked him to look after one of the boxers when I was away for, long weekend, Sandra and I went out to Mallorca and we came back and the boxer said to me, uh, you've lost your job. This guy, this guy is brilliant. So, and it was, it was great <laughs> because he was able to, you know, he had the experience of being a boxer and uh, for four years he had just, just short of 40 fights and he won a couple of national titles and he understood it. But I trained him like a pro. It, I, I trained him the way I, I fought myself, so actually it was it was it was the wrong way to do it. But I trained him the way I trained. So the difference is that he knows that every individual is different, and every individual is good at certain things and not so good at others. And how do you batten down the hatches and improve them and that sort of thing? So he is much more versatile than me as a coach. Understands the strength and conditioning, understands nutrition implicitly. And that's why he's really, really good at what he does. And 
he understands human beings and he, he can take a guy that's aggressive and taking a guy that's that's defensive and 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 make them better and and that's i i keep talking about it. it's like he's got the alchemy he can turn the, the metal into gold and that's something that's very special and and just a, a final thought do you think boxing will ever return to the kind of position it was in in our public cultural lives as it was when yeah. when you won at Loftus Road, where we'll ever all be sitting around the TV and all saying, actually, we've got a lot in this country yeah. to be proud of yeah. in our boxes. Do you think that could ha happen again? I don't think we're ever going to get those big numbers again because I think television has changed forever. We now have 500 channels. We, are, we don't watch it the way we used to watch it. Life has changed, um, you know, social media um, has changed. We watch everything here. We read everything here. Papers are going out of out of date. You know, all of the newspapers are under incre increasing uh, financial trouble um, because we watch everything on on, on a laptop or, or you know, big phones. I, mean, I, I read everything on my phone these days. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's. Um, I think it's changed inexorably. I don't think it'll ever come back to that. But is there a future for? Boxing on terrestrial TV, undoubtedly. It's just about them apportioning the budget. It's simple as that. Because people still love boxing. They have always loved it. You know, as I mentioned about reading a, a book about thousands and thousands of people would tra travel for miles to watch boxing all those years ago, 300 years ago. And, and it's, it's no different now. Look at Joshua. Look mm. at the, 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 the exposure he gets. And, you know, if he were on terrestrial TV, he would get those huge numbers again, most definitely. It's just about whether or not, uh, you know, they're willing to invest the money in it. And sadly, most subscription channels have the money. And that's what you're up against. On that note of money, I'd just like to say thank you again for all your contributions to the Kent Opportunities Fund. There may be some people with shaking buckets on the way out, mm -hmm. so do feel free to put in some more loose change. But for now, thank you, and thanks to Barry McGuigan. Thank you very much. Thank you.